Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bikini Podcast. This is episode number 97. And today we're with amateur IFB competitor, as well as personal trainer and online coach, Maddie Baker. Maddie, thank you for coming on and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, man. It is a pleasure. So I actually wanted to get you on because I've always been a fan of how you train, like your form and execution. And I wanted to really give the ladies and the listeners an opportunity to hear your thoughts on it because... I first came across your page a few well, a few years ago now when you started training with Nay and Nay was your partner. And I seen the amount of muscle that Nay was able to put on in a very short period of time. And I thought, what is the difference maker here? And I noticed that you were training her and I seen the improvements that she made. And I was like, well, obviously Maddie knows what he's doing. And from that point, I paid attention to a lot of the stuff you've been doing and learn a bit about you know, your training protocol, your principles. And I thought it would be great to get the ladies, you know, listening to your thoughts and things, and perhaps they can implement some of your techniques and learn a bit about, you know, what you think is the most important thing for muscle growth. So first off, I think obviously, you know, exercise selection is a big thing. Um, you know, a lot of the time people have, you know, a lot of the time they have very poor exercise selection and then their execution is very average too. So I think, you know, addressing those two things first, um, will go a long way to obviously then, you know, propelling your physique forward. Yeah. So even let's actually start with Nay um, to begin with. So when you started, you know, training with her and I suppose working on, you know, technique, what were some of the things that you recognized in her training that she wasn't doing perhaps that you could attribute to, you know, some of the gains that she made, you know, the, the gains that I'm talking about and probably people don't have like a visual in front of them to understand, but, you know, it was back in the, what was it now? I would say it was 2021-ish. 20, yeah, back into 2020, 2021. Yeah, 2021. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, so what, what were some of the things that you identified, like let's say that Nay could have improved the training and what did you work on to, you know, to get that growth happening? I, you know, obviously she had a phenomenal foundation as we all know, but, um, you know, for example, little things like with her glute training, a lot of hip thrusting um, and then obviously, you know, posterior as a whole, hamstring curls, that sort of stuff. But I basically said, you know, if you want to get, you know, a certain level of density, I think there needs to be some form of hip hinge in there, like an RDL um, or a stiff leg if you're biasing hamstring, depending on what you're doing. So we introduced those. Obviously, she was already doing them, but I'm sort of there now to go, okay, you know, we don't want to be staying on the same weight for six weeks in a, in a row, okay? We want to keep form standardized and then look to get stronger over time. But, you know, that when I say getting stronger over time, we're not sacrificing execution just for adding extra load. Yeah. And I, I think that's probably a, a common thing where ladies think that training heavier is always the way to go, but they don't understand that execution of movements is really important. So we did speak off air a little bit about this as well. So um, the analogy that you're talking about, you know, with the squat, like teaching, you know, your your personal training clients, you know, how to squat. Can you go into detail about that in terms of understanding, you know, why biomechanics are so important? And then after getting the execution on point, progressing in the lift. So I think, you know, first of all, you have to look, every client is going to be different, okay? Obviously, you know, mechanically how people are built, everyone is different. Um, but me in the past, you know, if I've had a client that says they want to squat, you know, we'll go over it. I'll start everyone with a bodyweight squat. You know, I don't care if they say they've been training for five years. Everyone starts with a bodyweight squat. Um, and then usually I'll progress to a goblet squat, but I won't actually add any load to their back until I'm happy with how it looks. So if that means, you know, we're goblet squatting for four weeks, um, so be it. 
Yeah. And is it probably more of a flexibility issue that you see with, you know, male or females struggling with this type of movement or is it just a movement pattern or a combination of both? It could be a, a bit of both, but I think a lot of the time people just think with a squat, it's unrack the bar, you know, squat down, squat up. But when you break down a squat, it actually is quite technical with bracing, um, you know, tightness through the upper back, elbow positioning to obviously stabilize the bar. So it is a quite, you know, quite a technical thing, similar to a deadlift it's, or, an, or an RDL. They are very similar in terms of the breakdown, you know, with core bracing and stuff like that. So a lot of the things that I've found with clients is, you know, butt wink is a big one where they don't know how to actually brace properly with their core. Um, and obviously, you know, if you're doing that over time and, you know, not noticing and adding load, um, it's only going to be a matter of time before something goes wrong. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people do hit up that butt wink. So what would you say is the most common problem for the butt wink then? Like, how do they fix that? Bracing properly and then obviously having you know, the, the ankle, the knee and the hip in alignment. Okay. So it could be a, a change in stance. Um, and it, again, it depends on the goal of the squat. Most clients, if it's more of a quad focused squat, I will generally elevate the heels, whether it be with squat shoes or, um, you know, a wedge or a bumper plate or something like that. Um, and that usually helps a lot of the time as well. But again, it just, it depends on the client. Yeah. So you pretty much are a big fan of elevating the heel in, in where a client has, they don't have the flexibility or, perhaps even get some glute recruitment or is it more for the more so if quad focused squat i'll typically elevate the heel because obviously that's going to drive the knees you know further forward with more knee flexion um and that helps to if they're very tight through the ankle that essentially gives them more mobility to get obviously deeper into um the squat position properly for as much stress on the quad as possible but more if it was more of a glute focus then you would look at potentially like a, a low bar squat which is going to be a lot more hip dominant yeah, perfect. What I want to do actually before we get into more specifics on training, et cetera, I want to know a little bit more about your history. So one of the questions that have been submitted on NGL, we've got a lot of these questions, mm -hmm. um, is what made you first want to compete? So what was that decision like and, and how did you get inspired? Well, I actually never thought I was going to compete, to be honest. I can remember being younger, sitting in a barbershop with my mum getting a haircut, reading bodybuilding magazines and thinking that's disgusting. Um, and now I love it. So I think I'd just been training for a long time and then I sort of just wanted to push myself. So I sort of just fell into it, I guess. Mm. Was, there, was there someone in the gym that you looked up to or did you attend a show where you were like, oh, damn, this is for me? So like, how did you, like, what was that transition period like? Because um, for me personally, I had some older dude in the gym, like said to me, hey, like, have you thought about competing? I'm like, what's what's that? I had no idea. So was there a moment? Yeah, there like, were a few, yeah, a few older boys at the gym that I went to watch their shows, some of my good mates. So um yeah i sort of i guess it just started from there and then i wanted to challenge myself yeah what was the first show that you did uh 2020 just before the the the, the COVID hit so i did the new south wales state show and then which was the last state show before arnold's went to fly to melbourne the next day and then basically that's when everything um went crazy yeah you, you didn't end up flying to melbourne for that show no nah. it turned out well because i was still a junior at the time and there was no other junior so you don't, I don't think you want to compete in something like an Arnold and get a default uh, win. Yeah, no, definitely not. I'm, I no, remember that, 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 that Arnold was chaotic. It was, look, props to Tony Doherty for still putting together a show under extreme circumstances. Course, yeah. A lot of the competitors, like, you know, you obviously went through a prep, wanted to, you know, to compete the Arnold, which would have been an awesome, awesome thing to do, an awesome experience. So how did you cope with that as well? Like, to go through a prep, and have that end goal 
and then to, to have the show cancelled because that doesn't happen to a lot of people. Yeah, it was hard, man. But I guess, you know, we're all in the similar situation. Nay was getting ready for the pro show. So, you know, I guess in in a way I was lucky I still got to do the state show. Um, and having, you know, I did two categories at the time, junior and novice, and having two good results there, I guess, you know, obviously I was disappointed, but I was still very happy with the outcome from the um, the state show. What was your feedback from that show? Because now you're you're doing, you're still hitting up classic. And I suppose when are you competing next would be the next question. Because you're kind of looking big. Uh, I don't know if you're a classic anymore. Like, I feel like they need to increase the weight limit because <laughs> you looks like you're exploding. I, know, man. I, I haven't, I've been talking with George. I haven't actually set in any sort of plans to compete again anytime soon. Um, I'm just enjoying the training for now, man. I love, you know, training's my thing. Competing's fun too. But, you know, the main thing for me is the training. It's something I love. So for now, it's just continue to train, continue to eat and see where we end up. Yeah. So we'll get to, we'll, what we'll do is we'll get to, we'll just hammer some of uh, these questions through on NGL and then we'll have some dialogue in between. So someone wrote, "How is Golds treating you, Maddie? So how do you like training there, uh, PTing out of there?" Love it there, absolutely love it. So I've been a member there basically since they opened eight, nine years ago now. Um, and I was at any time fitness before, and then I was obviously considering going to Golds for a long time. Finally, when the call went down there, and you know, it, it's just it's my second home really, so I didn't feel you know, awkward in that transition phase or anything. Adam and Michelle, who run it, shout out to Adam and Michelle. They're, um, they're both fantastic people. Um, and I've got a lot of my good friends there as well. So it was a no-brainer, really. Okay, cool, cool. And um, I've got a question here. It says, when are you first, sorry, when you first started personal training, um, how did, or what is the best way to create a name for yourself? So how did you do that? I think one of the most undervalued things is actually being good with people. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of people that, you know, they have this degree, that degree, but I think if you're not good with people, it will only get you so far. Okay. So obviously, you know, upskilling, having a mentor and or a coach, if, you know, even if you aren't looking at competing, um, just for upskilling and stuff like that, I think it's important as well. Uh, but I think, you know, the biggest thing when it comes to, you know, PTing and being successful at it is obviously having, you know, good communication skills, good people skills. Um, and yeah. I think that's definitely the number one thing. Mm. Uh, so that, that leads on to the next thing. So I've got tips and advice for PTs that are new to the fitness industry. So working on the communication. But outside of that, um, I suppose maybe even upskilling. So if you were to start again and you were starting your personal training coaching journey, what would you do, do different or what would you prioritize outside of communication? Get a coach earlier. That's what I would do. Learn off the others around you. Um, and you have to remember that you know, when I started, when I was quite young, I was basically fresh out of high school. Obviously, the younger you are, the bigger your ego, you think you know everything, um, but you soon, you quickly realise you don't. So I think obviously being open to, you know, others around you and, and their experience is a big thing and just taking advice off others that have done it for longer than you, especially, you know, if they are a successful trainer. Yeah, I actually agree with that. I think the the biggest, one of the biggest mistakes that I made, made a few of them, but one of them was, not hiring a coach early when I wanted to put on muscle. I didn't know the benefits that I would receive, needed to have someone yep. help me with with training, nutrition. So I think hiring experts in the field, whether it's a personal trainer, whether it's a coach, whether it's both, to help, you know, to collect knowledge, to learn things, maybe to um, understand a different perspective and then continue the process. But like starting up as a newbie, best thing to do is to, to have a coach. Absolutely. And I, I see a lot of, you know, young guys coming up now that are, 
that are trainers and you see them in the gym and, you know, again, we have to realize everyone starts, you know, at different points, of course, but, um, you know, I sort of see some things and I just think, I hope they're not, you know, showing their clients how to do that like that because it's, it's not going to end well. Yeah. What, what, what are some of the things that you, that you see these, I suppose people do that you think that is most dangerous? I'd say it's more to males, way too much weight, way too quickly, terrible execution. And, you know, it, it's never going to end well. They might get away with it for a little bit, but it, it's soon going to catch up with them. With the execution of movement, are you a big tempo guy? Do you like control the negative a bit more? Um, so what determines good execution? I think, you know, a, not an awfully slow eccentric, but I think a good start is, you know, two to three second eccentric, slight pause, obviously, through, let's take leg press, for example. Me personally, I really like a slow eccentric, pausing in the length and range. Um, and then, you know, a one second back up, one second pause at the top. And then, you know, I just think you want to make sure that you're controlling the weight. The weight isn't controlling you. If you can't control the eccentric properly, you probably have no right to be, you know, using the amount of weight that you are. Yeah. And I suppose if you're pausing on the bottom as well, particularly for that, you're completely eliminating momentum. Exactly right. And now, I, you know, my, every client that I train, whether it's a lat pull down, whether it's a, a, a peg fly, um, you know, an RDL, I always make sure they're pausing in the stretch and at uh, the contraction just to make sure that, you know, they're in full control. Um, and again, it's going to, it's going to be, you know, more beneficial for injury prevention and stuff like that as well. Mm. I definitely see a lot of mistakes with, with people in the gym there loading up the bar or loading up different machines, performing, let's say a poor range of motion, perhaps using too much momentum in their training. And it does affect their physique. So yes, there's a higher chance of injury, but you're actually not going to get the results that you're after. And I think that these people have probably the right, right intention in terms of, I want to train intense, but it's just refocusing that intensity on execution and going, okay, actually, this is not the correct way to do it. I need to you know, put the weight back down, as you mentioned, starting with a smaller weight on a squat and then building the weight back up after the execution's there. So yeah, with with the squat, like obviously you mentioned, you know, four to six week period that you would look at making an adjustment. If, if it needs to be six weeks, you get them doing the movement correctly. Are there any other movements that you feel like are really a challenge, let's say for bikini competitors specifically, that they need to, you know, decrease the load on. Um, you touched on before, Nay, with the RDLs. Like, you know, what are the some common mistakes that you see bikini competitors making that you think that they can really, that they can benefit from reducing the load first? I think, I know I already said it, but definitely an RDL from working with, you know, some of your girls now, Golds, um, and a lot of Nay's girls as well. It's definitely something that a lot of them struggle with. They don't know how to hinge properly with the hip, okay? They just think about bending down and standing back up. Um, and all that does, you know, their erectors get pumped. There's minimal, you know, gluten ham involved. So I think, you know, pulling the weight back and learning how to hinge properly using your hips is going to be much more beneficial. I actually had one of Nays go last week or a couple of weeks ago um, who thought she was doing it correctly. We pulled the weight right back just to an empty barbell straight away. A few reps in, she goes, well, massive difference. So I think, um, yeah, learning how to hinge properly is quite a common one that I see. Yeah. And would you prefer ladies to, in, in the sense of when they're learning it again, do you like barbell or do you prefer dumbbell? See, again, back to, I think, you know, everyone is different. You know, some people prefer dumbbell, some people prefer barbell. But, you know, what I tell my own clients as well, obviously, you know, depending on how heavy the dumbbell go at your gym, 
the ability to load it could be a limitation. Not so much for bikini girl, but like for males as well, I guess. That could be a limitation in terms of how heavy you can load it. So obviously with the bar, you can go, you know, quite heavy, but I think it comes down to to personal preference and it's never going to be a one size fits all. So I will ask the client, you know, what do you prefer RDLing with? We might go over both, see which one feels more comfortable, which one looks better. Um, and then I just say, you know, you don't want to be changing every week. You don't want to go dumbbell one week, barbell the next week, Smith machine the next week. I try and keep it consistent. So obviously for tracking purposes, um, you know, you know if you are getting stronger over, on that movement pattern over an extended period. Mm. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you see bikini girls make, um, particularly when it comes to glute growth? Exercise selection and execution. It's pretty much always going to come back to those two things. Mm. So how would how would I know? Let's say like I'm a competitor. I'm listening to this. And I'm like, yeah, I need to change my form. It makes sense. Like I'm using too much weight. You know, how would one then also identify exercise selection as a problem? Like how would you go about that process of let's say elimination and looking at a program? I think first you would obviously look at the execution. So if someone's RDLing and all they're feeling is their lower back, obviously if they have a coach like you, for example, I would then you know say send your video to your coach get them to critique it. And then of course you can obviously do in-person sessions, stuff like that. But I think, um, you know, looking at how they're doing the movement pattern will always be the number one thing to address. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any other exercises okay. apart from an RDL that you see as, as an issue as well? Cause it's like, um, I think like from, let, let's say a lot of the time ladies maybe will, from my perspective, at least I'll see ladies struggle with, range of motion perhaps it's not glute focused but something let's say a common problem that i see with ladies is not doing a face pull correctly like they'll they'll pull all the way through they'll get trap activation like that's probably a common thing that i see what are some of the um you know movements that you that you probably adjust whether even including upper body that you're like yeah that's a real common thing especially for bikini girls i think a lot of back training as well obviously you know knowing how to bias more of the lat versus the upper back obviously with the elbow position um and that's something I've gone over with Shanae too, you know, with her training. Obviously, you know, differentiating between, okay, this is more of a lap bias versus an upper back bias and 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 so forth. So I think that's another big thing as well. And, you know, some of your girls as well, like Cara, for example, she was another one. Um, just things like that that I think, you know, when they actually stop and go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've got another question here. So it says, training with a belt while doing an RDL or squat, et cetera, I don't find it much more beneficial than without it. Do you reckon it's better, more of a fad, or do you think it's beneficial? I mean, I think they definitely do offer some benefit in terms of bracing. Me personally, I don't use one, and I haven't for quite a long time. Um, and again, from my experience working in gyms, I've found a lot of the time, particularly again, younger guys, when they squat, they see the belt as like a Band-Aid solution for shitty form. You know, they think as long as I have a belt on, I can I can squat however I want. And that's simply not the case. It's there obviously for a reason to help with, with you know, core stability and bracing. But, you know, me personally, I, I don't use them. I would much rather sort of, you know, let my core do its job. So yeah, I haven't, I haven't squatted or, you know, worn a belt for RDLs in probably five years. Yeah. So is it more of a personal preference thing or do you also teach your clients to do things beltless? I definitely teach them to do things beltless as well. I think sometimes wearing a belt, again, it serves its purpose, but I think it, sometimes people can get quite lazy with their core and learning how to brace properly. Um, so, yeah, I will typically always start with clients, you know, learn how to brace without a belt 
if you feel more confident wearing one, of course we can, but it, I still want to make sure they're bracing properly against the belt if they're, you know, squatting, deadlifting, whatever it may be. Yeah, I suppose that's probably one thing that we have a difference of opinion on in terms of wearing a belt versus not wearing a belt. But everything yeah. else, um, we're pretty much on the same page with. And I, it, yeah, it depends on the client. For, you know, in a space point of view, there's obviously the argument for bikini girls to keep the waist tight. Um, but, you know, with my experience, I've just never really sort of, not that I don't encourage them to wear them, but I think it's always good to make sure you're, you know, switching on your core and using it correctly without just sticking a belt on and thinking that's going to, you know, solve all your problems with, with that bad execution and injuries and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I actually fall victim to that when I first started training and I was, you know, squatting and deadlifting heavy or what I thought was heavy. And I would <laughs> I would always brace against the belt and do the craziest, dumbest shit with my with my deadlifts, with my rounding of the the back. And uh, yeah, it just did not look good. We've all been there. I've done some, yeah, I'd probably find somewhere in my phone years ago some shocking deadlift videos but again it, it comes down to experience and you know we've all we have to remember we've all done those things um but it's about obviously you know adapting and looking to improve yeah absolutely and and that's that's the part of this podcast as well as to you know give everyone the opportunity to listen to take in information and to try things out and to learn from you know our our mistakes as well because i certainly made a few um so next question here we've got is biggest training mistakes you see bikini girls make I know we can't know that we did that one. Um, for someone starting their fitness journey, what advice do you have on setting realistic expectations and creating achievable goals? I think allowing enough time for your given goal. Okay, a lot of people sometimes have these unrealistic expectations of, you know, I'm going to build X amount of muscle in this time, and you know, quite. Quick. And again, I've been there. I was young, bought my first type of protein powder, thought I was going to be enormous after it. We've all been there. But I think it's important to realize that, you know, it is a slow process. It's monotonous, but I think if it were a quick, easy process, you know, everyone would look great. So you just have to realize that, you know, it does take time. And I think, you know, not comparing yourself to other people is a big thing as well. Because, you know, some people go, I want to look like this guy, but he's been doing it for 20 years and you're six months into your journey. So I think it's about being realistic with where you're currently at um, and just, you know, devoting the time that it actually takes to make substantial, you know, progressions to your physique and staying consistent. That's the biggest thing. Yes. The lack of consistency kills everything. And you're right. There's a, there's an element of comparison, like, and when it doesn't matter male or female, when they, when they start the gym and your first 12 months, if you're training correctly and eating really well, you grow so much that you get those newbie gains. You can make the most gains you'll ever make if you're doing it properly in that first six to 12 months. Oh, I know yeah. I sure did. For me to, you know, add tissue, it obviously takes a lot longer because I've, I've been doing it for quite a long time now. So, yeah, I definitely think if you have, you know, at least an idea of what you're doing or proper guidance, even sort of without proper guidance, because it is such new stimulus, um, I definitely think you can you can get some good solid gains in that first sort of six to 12 months. Yeah. And the thing of it from this perspective, right, imagine if you had an, like a, you, you say, say 18 years old again, right? And you had no muscle you're you're in the gym day one now but with your mentality your mindset and your knowledge you'd probably grow twice as quick yeah for sure and i did again i did some dumb stuff when i started um i think we've all been there but it's just about knowing that you can't continue like that if you actually want to make you know any sort of any sort of progression yeah absolutely i want to circle back around to um to you for a sec, for a sec and this question is, what is your favorite phase to be in? So we've got off-season or in-season physique-wise? 
that's a, there's pros and cons to both, I guess. Like obviously prepping, you look, you know, a million bucks, of course, but you know, especially towards the back end of a prep, as I said earlier, for me, training is, you know, my thing. It's what I enjoy doing. So in terms of aesthetically, obviously, of course, prep looks great. But I think for me personally, you know, the phase of me now deep in the off season, you know, heaviest I've been, strongest I've been. Um, it's certainly a motivating thing for me going into the gym, knowing that I have, you know, the opportunity to constantly progress um, each week. It's just, it's also adapting the mentality and having that clear goal where, so you're focusing right now on progressing of you know progression with lifts, putting on size, and if you're seeing that change, you're you're feeling very fulfilled and rewarded. I suppose being in a deficit or a cutting phase, you're seeing most of the time changes on a weekly basis. So it might be a little bit easier. Yeah. You know, it's a lot of slower in an off-season setting. You know, you don't see the you know new detail every few days or or things like that, like you would in a prep. Yeah. So you, you've got a really good mindset for the off-season. So for Ladies that perhaps struggle with, you know, st- to be to stay as hungry, to stay as committed in in the off season. What would you say to these girls that might just um, lose a bit of that motivation and fire? Well, I think if you know if you have the goal of improving from the show you lasted to your next show, you have to dedicate the time in the off season. Obviously, we have to account for you know, extra flexibility with social outings and, and family and friends stuff like that. But you know, for the most part, I think with your approach to your nutrition and training, it certainly needs to be just as locked in as prep. You know, and I think a lot of people waste, you know, waste time and waste opportunity to progress by sort of screwing around in the off season and just waiting for prep to come. And I think, you know, you can see the ones that dedicate the time and, you know, the consistency in the off season when they, you know, come out next show and wow, look at the improvements. So I think that's, you know, a very important thing. And from my show in 2020 to 2023 last year, I put on, 11 kilos of stage weight so i think you know and i was i was pretty you know i was pretty meticulous in my off season obviously having george helped immensely as well um but i think you have to remember if you want to make considerable progress you know there's you can't really be screwing around in your off season and and doing you know one or two good sessions a week and just hoping you know that it improves you have to be meticulous with it and stick stick at it yeah i love that answer um, so the next question we've got here is how different do you think prep is between women and men and what are the key factors? I think obviously if it's an untested federation, PDs, that's yeah. a big thing. Let's make it an IFB specific question because we're assuming that majority um, perhaps would be at least the men um, and category yeah. specific, not all ladies obviously use PDs, but let's say, let's just assume that everyone's on PDs. So what would you say would be um, the difference, if anything, from a male to female physique, perhaps, in in their preparation? I think, again, obviously, you know, drugs are there and they're there to obviously help. But I think, again, coming back to the training and the nutrition, I've seen plenty of people take, you know, X, Y, Z amounts amounts of gear. But if the training and the nutrition isn't where it needs to be, um, you're going to be able to see that between you know, competitor one and competitor two. Um, and again, some people respond very well to PEDs, uh, but I think a lot of the time, quite often what I see is that's more on a pedestal than the actual, the training and the nutrition. So I think people have to sort of remember that. Yeah. And we were talking off air about certain competitors that are using very, very low dosages. And the reason why they've put on so much size and have that density is because of their training intensity, because of their discipline and dedication to the to the gym so it's like 
you can use as much as you like. And some people probably perhaps use a lot more than they should. And then they assume because they're on higher dosages that everyone else is when in fact they're not that this, you know, there's other competitors out there that are on lower dosage. If they are using, they're just very compliant with their nutrition or as compliant as they can be. And they're extremely dedicated to their training and execution of movement. Of course. It makes a big difference. Um, Absolutely. what are the next question is what are some indicators that a person might be overtraining and how can they adjust their training workout routine to prevent burnout or injury? I think if you find you're getting burnt out, like, you know, recovery slower, sleeping could be taking a hit. Obviously then you can look at things like deloads, um, you know, looking at training volume and how much you're actually doing. Uh, but I think, you know, for me personally, when I typically, I will do a four, the last block I did was six weeks, had a deload, literally finished it today. We just took three full days rest. Um, and, you know, I'm back in today feeling fresh, ready to go. So I think it's important to, you know, take sort of note of those signs if they're starting to appear. Um, and then, if, you know, obviously I'm not saying deload every three weeks, of course not. And I think a lot of people don't, you know, a lot of people might take deloads quicker than they need to. Um, but I think obviously, of course, we just got to keep an eye on things like that. If, if you know, recovery between sessions isn't as good, um, sleep starting to sort of suffer. They're all good indicators of potentially looking at, you know, a deload week or or things like that. Yeah. And I think context is incredibly important as well. You know, you're someone who trains very, very heavy and very intense. I suppose there are people out there that probably don't train so heavy and that aren't as intense and perhaps a deload may not be warranted because the effort that they're yep. putting into, you know, their gym, if they did a leg session with you versus a leg session by themselves, there's a big difference. <laughs> yeah, of course. But I think, it's, again, it's an honesty thing. You have to, a lot of the time, if I'm training a client, I'll, they'll finish a set and I'll go, you know, how many reps do you need left? They'll say zero. But like, something that I look for if I'm training someone is is if the concentric phase of the movement isn't slowing, um, you know, they're obviously, you know, they're not near failure. If that starts to slow, then of course. Now, obviously, I want the eccentric. I want each rep to look exactly the same, whether it's, you know, a set of 12, set of 15, whatever it may be. But I do want to see that concentric phase start to slow you know, towards the end of the set. So I know that they are in a close proximity to failure. Yeah. When you do achieve complete failure, when you're working with the client, you know, are there any particular intensity principles that you favor? So like, would you favor, for example, some, you know, force reps, some assisted repetitions, or, you know, you're a fan of partial repetitions, rest pause, or a combination of a few different things? With a lot of my clients, I do just, <clears throat> I do just tend to stick to straight sets. Um, you know, a few sort of like a leg extension, a few extra force reps, but for the most part, I do tend to stick to, you know, to straight tests. Cause I think again, a lot of people, if I said do a, a set to 10 of failure, they're probably going to stop with, you know, five or six reps left in the tank. So I don't think, you know, again, client dependent, but throwing in things like intensity techniques, if they don't know how to take a set to failure in the first place, mm. um, that's sort of what I try and get them to do first before I look at introducing those things. Yeah. So execution of movements a priority, getting them um, understanding what true failure means with that control tempo. So you mentioned, obviously, you know, the last rep needs to be as good as the first rep. And if they're not achieving that, then why do an intensity principle is what you're saying? If, if form starts to slip, I will call the set, mm. especially on an exercise where there is greater risk, like, you know, a, a squat or an RDL. As soon as I see that start to slip, um, I'll call the set there and then obviously let them know what I saw and what they need to work on for the next set. Yeah. And when you say form um, could be slipping, you're talking about um, not just posture or 
the um, the path, the movement path, but also tempo. So if you're really focusing on, like if they're speeding through the tempo now, they're dropping the weight twice as quick. Yeah, sort of that fight or flight, they start to feel, you know, some sort of discomfort and they speed it up. A leg extension is a perfect example. Obviously, that is such an isolated movement on the quads. Um, and I like, to, you know, clients to come up, hold at the top for two seconds, really squeeze, because that's the only opportunity to get the quad in a fully shortened position. So I do like clients to do that. And if they start to speed it up, obviously, again, it's that fight or flight. They start to feel that pain because it is so isolated. So I really like to, I had a client to actually, I really like to sort of, you know, get in their head and make sure that they're not sort of speeding things up. Yeah. Have you have you seen uh, the old school Tom Platt's videos on YouTube of him doing like leg extensions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, have Have you ever tried something like that yourself? I haven't. No, I have not. <laughs> this is oh shit. Uh, would you Would you ever do that? Or do you think that's like a unnecessary level of um, intensity? Oh, look again. We all know Platts was a freak, but I think, you know, I personally don't think I'll be doing sort of anything like that with a client. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the next the next question we have is, this is a good one. We spoke about this off air. So can you out-train crap genetics? Yes and no. Ooh, I think we right. both see some athletes where you'd look at photos where, you know, you wouldn't think. I use an example off air of someone like Nick Walker. Obviously, mm. yes, structurally, he doesn't have the prettiest physique, but if you see photos of him in his first show, um, you, know, you would not have thought that guy would go on to be, you know, an Arnold Classic winner and a potential Mr. Olympia one day. Yeah, I, I will say if he wins the Olympia one day, you go, what are they doing? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I do like Nick. I really like him. But in terms of, you know, the physique, I think, you know, Samson or, or, um, or Derek, it's certainly much more pleasing. Yeah, I even like I even like Hattie. Like, obviously, yeah. but I I like he's got a he's still freaky, but he's still got a nice decent structure on him. Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah, it's yeah. just dense brainy tissue. He's got like yeah that that like that side chest that lat spread just the detail through. He can't, he's kind of like a more aesthetic version of a Branch Warren. That's how I look at him. Yeah, yeah. Again, yeah. When he gets that most muscular, the detail through his chest is just. Wow. And you could really see that last year when he's next to Derek. I think, you know, that's where he got Derek in a few shots. But um, I think obviously, you know, Derek's shape and his, his back is just phenomenal. Yeah. What do you actually, uh, I want to actually ask about well, like wellness. So what do you, what do you think of the, the wellness division in general now, especially where the size is going? Because I feel like these ladies are really going to the next level of density because we, you know, obviously amateur athletes in Australia only see what the Australians look like on an amateur level, but perhaps don't understand and recognize the level of density that these wellness skills have and what are your thoughts on the density with the with the wellness skills these days and the pro wellness? it's pretty phenomenal it's yeah seeing it in person is, is pretty crazy um obviously a lot of them you know i think wellness is obviously a very genetic category as well you know if you're someone like a lot of people say to nay or why don't you do wellness but you know nay is quite tall she has very long legs and against those girls who are obviously a lot more compact it would yeah, it would look um, it would look pretty funny. Oh yeah, with you, you also have the opportunity to you know to travel to the states uh, with with Nay and you know see you know bikini girls up up close. So um, I've been saying this for a little bit, but I want to hear your perspective on. We've spoken about it off air, obviously, but for the for the listeners, 
what is your perspective on bikini pro bikini over in the states because you're seeing like the quality of competitors the level of muscle the level of condition like what was your experience like and um what were you thinking when you're seeing these girls on stage i think it's like a lot of lives there are a lot of very impressive girls um and then there are a lot of girls who aren't so impressive but the standard over there is definitely um you know, definitely the top I found. And of course, obviously with, you know, a lot of, they have the opportunity to compete in a lot more shows. So of course you're going to get, you know, a higher caliber of athletes there. Um, but the shows that I attended, you know, I saw in, which one was it? In Dallas? No, in Denver. There was Issa, Ash K, uh, and Sinead was obviously in top five with them. So seeing that in person was um, was pretty cool. Yeah. How does Ash K look in person, do you think, versus online? I feel like for me personally, I'm a big fan of her condition and she's always like pretty consistent with her body fat distribution. So she may not be the biggest, but she's pretty dense and and I feel like, and has that level of condition that's very consistent. Yeah, when I saw her sort of back, you know, around the venue, just in clothes, it, it's funny, it doesn't sort of look like a lot, but um, yeah, on stage, she, she certainly looks good. I feel like they're getting bigger these days. I saw a photo of Ash the other day and I looked, she's kind of like off season, but very, very lean. And she looks pretty damn big. I was surprised. I'm like, oh, she looks like she's putting on some some size here. I think a lot of the divisions are. Like even backstage in the Miami show, the men's physique guys, some of them were absolutely enormous. Like they're, they're just bodybuilders with with board shorts. Yeah. So I think those divisions are, it's, it's, yeah, they're just getting bigger and bigger. Maybe they, I think, I think, did they do the weight limit now with the men's physique? I think they, I think, yes, they introduced it, same as classic. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. So I think that will, that will push a lot of guys, you know, from men's physique potentially into, into classic. Yeah. Oh, uh, this is another thing. So we're going back to can you out train crap genetics? So you said yes and no. So we obviously spoke about Nick Walker. Um, what else, what else do you think about that? So out training crap genetics. So, Obviously, in that case, Nick Walker's done a really good job in, in maximizing his genetics. Um, but outside of that, maybe can you provide a bit more insight on on that question? I think it just comes down to, you know, the the level of application that the individual is willing to put in. Okay? I guess you, you'll never really know um, unless you try and, you know, and try hard for, you know, a consistent amount of time. So a lot of people... And I'm sure you've heard it too. They play the genetic card in the first eight weeks of training. They're not allowing enough time. So I think it just comes down to, you know, doing things and doing things well for an extended period. And then obviously seeing sort of where you land. Yeah. I think there's also many examples of competitors, both male or female, that have won shows that perhaps people could perceive um, as not as better genetics than some of their competitors but purely because like what you're talking about before, um, they're compliant, they're disciplined, they get the job done. And maybe Absolutely. the genetic freaks or the, you know, the athletes that are more genetically gifted, they're because they know they're gifted, maybe they're a little bit lazy. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. The the work ethic and the, you know, I guess the consistency sort of drops off because they think that genetics will carry them over the line. Yeah. And there's a lot of that too, where I see even let's say specifically with the bikini category. I'll see certain athletes uh, on with with different coaches, and they're getting pumped up like they're the next big thing. And I'm looking at them going structurally; they absolutely are, you know, structurally the shape. And then when it comes to stage time, there's like, oh, they're not in condition. Oh, they look flat. They, they left something to be desired. And you know, is it a coaching problem, perhaps? But I also think it's also maybe an attitude problem where they may have had too many people tell them how good they look, which might be true. 
but they haven't gone to the next level and haven't taken advantage of their their great genetics. Yeah, of course. And I think anyone that's been, you know, there's a difference between being lean and being peeled. And I think anyone that's been to that end of, of peeled, they know that it's it's not easy. It's it's hard. I've been there and it's it's not fun. It is fun, but it's not fun. So I think, you know, a lot of people sort of haven't experienced, you know, just what it takes to get truly, and again, category dependent, but, you know, truly inside out. Yeah. We're going back to a training question here. So uh, what are three exercises that you think help grow the legs the most? And what are the biggest mistakes of these exercises? My three, we're talking quads or sort of hamstring as well. Ooh, let's go. All right, how about this? We'll, we'll do, yeah, we'll, do, we'll actually do three quad and we'll do three hamstring. All right, so quad, I would say a squat pattern where you can achieve a lot of knee flexion safely. So something like a hack squat or a pendulum squat, obviously you have a lot of external stability um, on those machines. And I think you can get a lot closer to failure on those, you know, safely compared to, you know, I love them of course, but a, a free weight barbell squat. So I would say some sort of squat pattern where it allows you to get a lot of flexion, um, a leg press, same deal, obviously, you know, form and, and depth will dictate that as well. A lot of people, I'm sure you've seen too, they they fill the leg press up and, and move their knees half an inch. They're wasting their time. So again, a leg press performed properly and then something, I guess you could say a lunge pattern as well or something like a leg extension where you can get the quad into that fully short position because you obviously don't have a lot of opportunity with other exercises to do that. It, if we're talking about like quad development. Obviously, Tom Platts was a big barbell squat guy. But he was big on hack squats, and yep. also Dorian Yates was a big fan of of hack squats based yeah, on structure. Dorian, I don't think he ever really sort of barbell squatted. But again, then you got people like Ronnie. It, it's person dependent, but um, I think any sort of squat pattern that allows you to get again as much flexion as you can in a safe way, um, as long as it's performer, will probably be your best option. Yeah, well, I'll make this one easier for you. So, if you're going to select one hamstring movement, like only one, what would it be? Um, and, um, oh, sorry, actually, just before we go to the, the hamstring, what was the, what are the biggest mistakes of those exercises? So let's say, um, if you're going to set up a pendulum squat, right? Cause we didn't, we haven't touched on that yet. What would you say is uh, a common mistake on that movement, um, that you see clients do or people in the gym? Well, I think first and foremost, people don't realize just how heavy pendulums are. They treat it like a hack squat. Um, and they soon realize that, you know, one twenty kilo plate on a pendulum is probably like three or four and a hack. Um, so I think a lot of the time, again, it's similar to a leg press, far too much load, execution is pretty average, and then and obviously depth's an important one as well. So they're the main things that I see. Yeah. I actually did my first pendulum. I just started training legs properly again. I think I messaged you. I said Yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's brutal. Did a pendulum and I was like, wow, I I I can't remember what load I put on there. It might have been 10 kilos on each side. And I was like, this is actually really heavy. It depends. <laughs> I found too, it depends on the brand of Pendulum in terms of the the, the the manufacturer. Like the one that we have at Gold's is a Watson, which is a UK brand. And that thing is heavy. It's super vertical compared to a lot that are more, a little bit more laid down. And I've used one at a world gym um, and put six plates on it and done 10 reps. Whereas the one at Gold's, the most I've done is five um, for 10 reps. So again, it depends on the brand of the equipment and they're not, I guess it's like most machines, they're not all created equal in terms of just how heavy they are. 
Yeah. And that actually reminds me, I've been to certain gyms where even the hammer strength press, the, the, um, like a plate loaded press, uh, yep. would be, uh, the, the actual, uh, design of the machine would differ between years. So some would be a little bit lighter where you could load up yeah, the yeah, plates, yeah. and then you'd have a heavy hammer strength press. And you're like, you go to a gym, you're like, what? This feels so heavy. So and <laughs> probably no one uses them. That's an ego killer. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, you get humble real quick. So yeah, yeah that, that makes yeah. sense. The um that's also a really good point where I suppose if you're if you're an athlete or even if you're obviously there's a lot of athletes listening to this, but if you're traveling to a different gym that's not yours, it could be the same brand. It might be a different year of the machine. Perhaps yeah. you know, when you're traveling, not using the same load. Um, that you would in your normal gym because the environment and circumstance is different. Yeah, of course. And I think if you're, you know, tracking your training, of course, you know, me, I like to keep exercises very consistent, you know, week to week. So I know if I'm progressing over time, but I think if, if you are traveling and, you know, the leg press is a different brand, I think you might sort of veer away from, okay, I did X amount of weight, X amount of reps and use more of an RPE or reps and reserve scale. That way it's, it's accurate because obviously you can have a leg press at your gym where, you know, five plates aside is really heavy. And then you could be traveling and using a leg press where five plates aside is really light. So that's when I would sort of, you know, obviously, you know, perform warm-up sets and see how it's feeling. Um, and then if it is a different brand, I would then obviously look at more of a an RPE or, or reps in reserve scale. Yeah, awesome. Uh, let's get to that, uh, the hamstring movement. So we're selecting the ultimate hamstring movement. You can only do one hamstring exercise for the rest of your life what what is it and also what would be the biggest mistake on that exercise me personally i would say a seated leg curl if i could only do one it would definitely be a seated leg curl seated seated why okay so why seated over lying when you look at the hamstring obviously there's two functions we've got knee flexion and then hip extension so obviously in a, in a seated leg curl in an upright position with your torso you're sort of getting a bit of um, hip extension as well. And then of course, obviously curling down, you're getting the flexion aspect. So me personally, I would um, much prefer a seated. Whereas when I train Nate, for example, she she prefers a line. Again, it's person dependent, but um, I would definitely choose a seated if it was the only one I could do. Mm. And uh, what would be the biggest mistake that you see people use on the seated leg curl? First of all, the setup of the machine, obviously with the, you know, the ankle pad, making sure that's in a, a correct position and then probably the seat pad as well. Obviously that's going to make it feel very awkward, but a, quite a common one is obviously the brace that comes down on your quads. People don't use that to their advantage. Okay. They don't have it tight enough. Um, and when they're curling down, their hips are obviously moving forward. So I like to suggest to clients, it's obviously on the machine for a reason. So, you, you know, use it to your advantage. I like to tell clients to sort of push back and slightly lean forward, um, you know, almost like a little crunch so that their lower back, stays pressed against the pad and obviously that's going to you know limit the amount of movement you get at your hips as well but again it comes down to a load thing a lot of people use far too much load um and they're essentially you know laying down while they're doing it because their hips have moved so far forward so mm. um yeah that's pretty that's pretty common that's it's really interesting because you know we obviously touched on on using really controlled tempo not using momentum but in some cases when using different pieces of machine it's very important to adjust the pad or the height of a machine to make sure that it's accurate for your structure, for your height. Because a lot of people probably 
you know, if it's a leg curl, you're right. It took me a little while when I first started to get the correct position for a seated leg curl, get the correct position for a lying leg curl. And yeah. it's not easy to get that, you know, that correct feeling. Well, but once you do, like for me on the seat, once you get that position, um, it feels really, so I, I suggest to clients, if it's a seat number and then like a, most seated leg curls have like a small, medium, large for the, the ankle pad, just put a note in your phone somewhere what you're using so you don't have to sort of screw around with it too much. That's what I do. That way I know, um, you know, where the setting is. And again, so it's consistent each week when you're trying to accurately, you know, track and progress your training. I like that. Notes on pads for for settings. That's a very, very good idea. Because I mean, if you're also doing like um, other exercises that come to mind, if you're like on a plate loaded, you know, hammer strength piece, um, like let's say a yeah, hammer strength All that sort of stuff, you want to make sure it's obviously consistent. So I write most of my things on my phone, you know, seat on seven, whatever it may be, just so I know when I'm doing it, I'm not sort of playing around yeah. too much. Because again, you know, obviously we're after accuracy here. So if you can control, you know, you can obviously control those things. So I just think, why would you not? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I love that. All right, we'll go to the next question. So what are some common mistakes on a hip thrust? I suppose there's different variations of a hip thrust, but perhaps we can just say um, barbell. I would say a lot of extension through the spine. Obviously, you want to stack the rib cage on top of the pelvis. And another thing too, a lot of, I find um, having their heads back, you want to keep your chin tucked so you stay neutral um, through your spine. And a lot of the time, if if I've had ladies in the past where they go, I feel my lower back a lot, obviously we'll look at foot positioning and stuff, but a lot of the time it's because they have um, you know, their head back um, and it's obviously causing that extension through their lower back. As soon as we fix that, nine out of 10 times, it, it's a solution for them you know, to feel it properly in their glutes and not have their lower back um, taking over too much. Yeah. I've I, I got a funny question for you. Do you think, so are you a fan of, how do you label this? Do you think a hip thrust is a hip thrust and a partial, partial repetition hip thrust is a thing? Or do you label it like a cash, uh, cask glute bridge? How do you like to label things in the gym? I just call it a hip thrust. <laughs> I like, I just think that that's, yeah, I just call it hip thrust. Yo, I'm the, gonna... if, yeah, usually the goal is obviously glutes. So I just, you know, I like to stay in the range for the glutes. I think if you're dropping too far down, again, depending on full positioning, quads are going to come into the movement. Um, yeah. You know, you're not hip thrusting. You want to grow quads, you're not hip thrusting. Get on a squat. I, I also want to say, I, I want to say like a hip thrust is a hip thrust. Can people stop calling it a cask glute bridge when it's a fucking hip thrust? <laughs> I just call it a hip thrust. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm going to invent a movement and um, it's going to be a chest press, but it's a half range barbell press. I'm going to call it a Troy press. I just, I don't say, <laughs> I just say a hip thrust with a, a you know, a smaller range. Otherwise, <laughs> people just get confused. Absolutely. Because I, I do have clients that were like, oh, what's, um, I program a barbell glute bridge and they're like, oh, is, and they'll send, is this what it's supposed to be? I'm like, no, like literally off the floor, like a glute bridge. It's always the been off stopping between reps, yeah. You know, so obviously, you know, the intention is to have that they're saying a cask glute bridge is a short range motion hip thrust. So why don't you call it exactly that? Um, so, okay, so what, um, next question here we got going back to the bikini world. What are your favorite go to exercises for targeted specific muscle groups that contribute to the overall bikini physique? And how do you ensure your clients perform proper form? So, as we've gone over the proper form, but what are your personal favorite movements that you think 
um, would be really beneficial for most bikini girls to consider as a part of their training program? I think obviously, you know, based off the criteria, learning how to train their delts correctly in terms of ladder raises um, and learning how to train lats properly. Yo, that's, it's so true. I think learning it, we Especially talked about it before. Again, you know, no lats, it's, it's going to, it's going to have a, you know, a negative effect on that. So I think, you know, learning how to train lats properly um, and then obviously, you know, lateral raises, things like that. Yeah. With, with the lateral raises, we haven't touched on that. So what do you think are some common problems with activating the side delt? So what are they doing wrong to, to maybe get more front delt versus side delt? Well, I've found with lateral raises, a lot of the time people go straight out to the side because they think it's, you know, a side raise. So they go directly to the side. Um, and I've fixed, you know, a few of your girls actually I've had come and I've helped them with that. And I think with a lateral raise, it's never directly to the side. Okay. You want to go slightly forward in the scapular plane so that you're not locking up through your traps. So a lot of the time when you, when you get people to do that, um, straight away, traps are gone and a lot more, a lot more through the side delt. Yeah. So it's like, if you're going, yeah, because I think yeah, directly side on does get that trap recruitment. And mm -hmm. if you were to, I think the, the problem in that case would be the shoulder elevation to also get that. So in order to have that full range, they've got to shrug their shoulder up and that's probably what's happening. But with could this- could be a load, a load issue as well. If it's too heavy and you find that you're shrugging, again, it could be a load problem. Yeah. So, well, there you go. It goes back to your, you know, your principles of, okay, there's a problem with this movement. Let's strip the weight and figure out uh, the path, the movement path, and get it correct, and then yeah. build the weight back up. I think you should approach every exercise with that, that with that same sort of intent. You want to, you know, if you're doing something poorly with a lot of weight, pull it back, do it properly, and then progress from there. But a lot of the time, when it comes to, you know, progressing on on bigger exercises like you know an RDL or something like that, you know, if you know in your head that it was a relatively easy set, of course, you can probably get away with taking a bigger load jump. Um, but I think people are too quick to rush progression. You know, they do 61 week and go, okay, I'm going straight to 100. I think I say to people all the time, of course, depending on the strength of the individual that will come into play. But I think, okay, if you just did 50 kilos, why don't we now go 52.5 next week and then 55 and then 57 and a half and then six. There's five weeks of progression. Instead of going from 50 straight to 80 and going, oh, shit, it's two weeks up in a wall. Yeah. It's it's interesting because like I'm thinking of um, certain clients that, um, particularly new clients, when they're starting up and I've got them doing certain, um, you know, certain tempos and they'll send me, let's say like a common exercise. That's a problem. Obviously we mentioned face pulls, RDLs. I feel like are quite common too. Common problem with um, execution would be a hyperextension. And then they'll send me a video of them performing a hyperextension for glute focus. And they've got the movement under load. Like they're holding a 20 kilo plate. I'm like, yo, you're filling your lower back. Like why have you got yeah. this under load for? Like that's the, one of the biggest problems. Yeah, and I think from my experience of training a lot of females, if you're doing that properly, you don't need a lot of weight at all and something like that. If you're doing, you know, hyperextensions with 40 kilos, it's I can guarantee it's pretty ordinary. Yeah. How do you how do you uh, I suppose obviously like education is very important, but it's it's challenging, I suppose, to get a competitor, and this is something that I also struggle with, to understand that you know, no momentum is key, right? But to get them to completely feel the movement, because if the hyperextension, that's a good example of, this is one of the most challenging movements I find, um, especially from mm -hmm. an online coaching perspective. In person, you could probably touch and feel them and yeah, the course, correction. Yeah. But 
just because you can move the load doesn't mean that you should. That's exactly right. And so let's say, you know, someone's using 40 kilos, which they probably could hold 40 kilos and, and move the weight. Are you saying like, how do you get them to sort of reduce the load or? Yeah, like to get rid of the ego because you'll break it down and they'll go, oh, we're going body weight and they'll just do like, oh, I can do 30 reps, I can do 40 reps, you know, for example, because it's it's so easy, but they're not really activating it and, and really. Not yet, they're not using the muscle correctly. And I've had, I had a client of yours come up from Canberra two weeks ago. I had her doing hyperextension with a five kilo plate, um, 10 to 12 reps roughly, and she was smoked at the end of it. And it's because we obviously focus on, you know, correcting little things with her form. Uh, you know, again, slightly crunching to disengage the lower back. And a lot of time people come up way too, you know, way too high on, on something like a, a hyperextension. And it's just all erector. Um, so, yeah, I think, again, you either, of course, the goal is obviously to move weight eventually. But, again, not at the expense of just throwing form out the window. Yeah. And that, that's exactly like lo rounding that lower back, rounding that upper back is, is a common thing that can help with recruitment. And I think a lot of the time that helps straight away with, you know, if they go, oh, it's all my lower back. As soon as you do that, you disengage, obviously, you know, the erectors need the side of your spine. So I think that helps too. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Uh, we'll move on to the next one. So we're almost finished up here. So considering the influence of social media on body image, uh, what tips do you have on creating a positive self-image for clients? I said it earlier, I think it's just important not to compare to other people. We don't know how long, you know, the person you may be comparing to has been doing this. Um, and you have to remember that everyone obviously starts somewhere. I know it can be hard not to, um, especially in a sport, you know, like bodybuilding where you're looking at you know, athletes you may be competing against. But at the end of the day, you know, from a competitive point of view, you can't control who shows up. Um, you know, so as long as you're your best um, and you're focusing on yourself, I think that's that's key. Yeah, the the art of the art of comparison is almost a thief of joy, really. Hundred percent. You're you're not seeing how far you've come, and I think also taking the time to reflect on your progress, like maybe look at your starting photos, see how you looked mm -hmm. six months ago, compare it to that, and then compare your starting photos to how you look now, and and actually appreciate the hard work you put in and the improvements that you've made, uh, whether you've been yep. consistent inconsistent, um, you know, maybe compliant with the diet some cases and, and then other times you're not, but have a look at the progress you've made. And yep. I suppose if you're also done that and you've reflected and go, you know what, I'm not happy with that progress. All right, that's cool. You're aware of it, up the work ethic and, and then make some changes. I was say, if you're not happy, why is that? That's what you have to do. And again, it comes down to being honest with yourself. If you know that, you know, let's say you've had a, a 40 week off season and, you know, the first 10 you train twice a week and eight out six times a week, again, you have to be honest with yourself. It comes down to that at the end of the day. If you've ticked every box and you can look and go, wow, look where it was, look where I am now, that's all you can do. Oh, yeah. I actually have some clients um, that will message me sometimes. I get some some of these common questions and um, they're not happy with their body composition. And um, like we, well, I'm like, look, we're going to a deficit. And then yeah. they'll say, hey, like, how would you feel about me having a free meal per week? And I'm like, you know, we're actually, we spoke about, you know, you're not being happy with your body composition. Let's actually focus on bringing your composition down first, get, get in a leaner position. And then perhaps we can look at adding in a free meal per week once the metabolism's there. But they don't, they think they can have it all, but there's some sort of discipline that's required in order for you to achieve that, um, especially. Well, I think if yeah. If you're saying you're not happy with your, you know, your, your body fat and you want to lose body fat, and then you're asking about free meals in the same sentence, 
are you really that serious? That's what I think anyway. If you're asking, you know, if you're in week one in a deficit asking for a free meal, I think, you know, again, you have to sort of rethink your priorities and what's actually important, losing the body fat or, or you know, eating the food. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I like that. All right, we're gonna we're gonna finish up. We've got one last question here. When are you proposing to Nay? Guess we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> are we? <laughs> I don't I don't know. I don't know who that was. That was probably some some sort of fairy on NGL. Yeah, I think I know who it was. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's a good girl, Nay. She's a good girl. That is gold. All right. Well, um, any any closing comments or thoughts? Um, perhaps anything that we, you need to rehash or anything we didn't go over that you think could be beneficial? I think when it comes to training, just as I said, if something doesn't feel right, um, I think you you know reassess what you're doing and how you're doing it. Because that's mm -hmm. usually, you know, usually you can find a solution with that from what I've found anyway. A lot of the time I said it, it's it's far too much load, it's poor setup, it's poor execution, it's poor exercise selection, all those things obviously under the umbrella of, you know, of physique development and why you may or may not be making progress. Yeah, awesome. I love that. So for anyone that's interested in getting in contact with you for, you know, personal training sessions or online coaching, what would be the best way to contact you? Just uh, hit you up on Instagram DM? Yeah, on my I got a link tree on my Instagram with all my all my services there. Um, obviously DM me if you like, but usually the coaching applications people may may DM and ask. But obviously, as I said, there's a link tree on my Instagram where you can find um, you know my my booking system for PT and obviously a, a, a part for coaching applications. So yeah, usually Instagram is the best, and my email's on there as well. Yeah, perfect. And um, I'll say here I've said it obviously on Instagram, but I highly recommend your services for ladies that are interested in. You know, understanding better form and also not just that, like once the form's there, understanding what true failure means and the level of intensity. If you're a serious athlete or you want to be a serious athlete and you want to lift your game up, definitely get in contact with Maddie and organize a few sessions because Maddie is definitely, you know, I've seen you've contributed heavily to Nay's success in terms of her putting on an amount of muscle. And I know a lot of ladies do look up to Nay and probably maybe didn't understand that you were a big, big part of that. And obviously that's with your training principles and your methods and um, the way that you go about things. So um, definitely hit Maddie up for that, ladies. And um, I really appreciate you coming on, by the way. This was definitely a good chat. I hope that the, you, man. Appreciate it. the listeners would definitely get a bit of value out of it. And um, well, I'll be seeing you season A. Season A is coming up. See you, uh, yeah. How many weeks now in New South Wales? Seven, I think. Yeah, so... So, so now we're uh, six and a half weeks out. By the time this is aired, I'm going to post this next week. So it'll be, by the time they're listening, it'll be, you know, one week later. But um, yeah, time's flying. It's going to be six weeks. Wow, that's gone quick. I feel like it goes so much quicker when you're watching people do it. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, yeah, when you're... <laughs> when, when you're, you're doing it, you're like, oh, four weeks. It feels like, you know, three months. <laughs> it feels like an eternity, yeah. But um, yeah, thank you for no, coming. I look, I look forward to seeing you. And um, for anyone... Please message Maddie. You got any questions? You can message me as well. Until next time, thank you for listening and peace. Thanks, guys.